Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Thanks for listening in again this week. And as always, a big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. You're listening and subscribing to the podcast means a lot, and I really do appreciate it. And again, please don't be shy about spreading the word on social media or with your colleagues and friends. And also, if you wouldn't mind leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, uh, even if you just click the five stars and, and move on, that, uh, <laughs> that goes a long way. Um, apparently, that's how this podcast thing works. Uh, the listening audience, I have to say, is definitely expanding, and I'm really grateful for that. It's clear that many of you have already spread the word on social media, as I see it in my mentions and the podcast account mentions as well. And also during Zoom trainings, when I'm conducting workshops, etc., uh, I'm hearing more people talk about the podcast, that they've shared it with their colleagues and friends, and that their friends are starting to listen, etc. So I just want to say with all of that, thank you so much for doing that. I, I really do appreciate it. Well, as John Lennon once said, life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. As you know, Leanne Young was supposed to be my guest this week, but between schedule changes and a major internet issue where she lives, I'm going solo this week. So the plan is to have Leanne with us next week. What I plan to do today, and I've always kind of had this in the back of my mind as a backup plan, just in case things happen, is to go back over the podcast and highlight how each one of my guests so far has answered the question, what's your definition of success? So prepare to be inspired. In Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to address the issue of more expansive transcripts and some of the practical issues that I believe some people and groups are failing to consider when hypothesizing, maybe even pontificating, about the current transcript format. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. The highlights of defining success and happiness are coming up. But first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by identifying what I believe is the number one happiness killer. Now, we can all define success and happiness in our own way. But I really do believe there is a number one ranked universal instant happiness killer. And that is comparison. This ties into what we talked about a couple of weeks ago when I was exploring the topic of and the question, why can't we be happy for other people? There is, in my mind, only one positive reason or outcome to comparing yourself to others, and I'm going to talk about that at the end. But first, let's just all understand that almost no good can come from comparing yourself or your situation to others. So we begin now with a declaration, and it's this. You will always be able to find somebody who's doing better than you, and you will always be able to find somebody who's doing worse. We are all, all of us, somewhere in the middle. You know that person you look at with envy? You know that person you compare your life to, your work life, your personal life, your financial situation? You know the person who, unbeknownst to them, makes you feel less than in your life? You know that person? Well, guess what? You are that person for someone else. We're all in the middle. There are people out there for whom you kill their happiness. Because you seem to have it all together. You seem to have the success. You seem to have the life. You seem to have everything that they want. Comparison is the most efficient and effective happiness killer out there. And it rarely, again, if ever, produces a po positive result. Comparison is all about ego. Like, look, I'm not trying to come off as some higher self or being immune to it. All of us including me, we're all susceptible to the influence of ego. Now you might think to yourself, well, Tom, comparison can be positive. If I keep comparing myself to those doing worse than me, that makes me feel better. You know, how can that be a negative? It's a negative because you're only feeding your ego. Any comparison up or down or by direct association is really just feeding our lowest of selves. It's our egos. And from my experience, in my own growth and development as a human being, living from ego is never satisfying. It creates such an intense internal anxiety, and it can never, never be satiated. Now, according to author and teacher Eckhart Tolle, who's uh, famous for the books The Power of Now and A New Earth, he says this, quote, The underlying emotion that governs all of the activities associated with the ego is fear. End quote. 
Now, look, I don't want to get too new agey on you here. But in this case, I think he's right. One thing he asserts is that the ego needs to feel superior. So there you go. The reason you might find it so desirable to compare yourself to those doing worse is that it makes you feel superior. One of the small ways that we seek superiority is usually through information, right? When you have the inside scoop or, you know, you've got the secret sauce or you, you, you know the truth about the rumors or the gossip, that, that kind of makes us feel superior. You kind of control through information. Now, a much larger way that we gain superiority is name dropping. Listen to what Toll writes about the ego and name dropping. Quote, the well-known phenomenon of name dropping, you know, the casual mention of who you know, is part of the ego's strategy of gaining a superior identity in the eyes of others and therefore in its own eyes through association with someone important, end quote. You know anybody like that? You know the person who always seems to just casually slip into a conversation how many important people they know or who knows them? And then people look at them like, wow, and boom, the superiority kicks in, right? And they start thinking, don't you wish you were me? Aren't I special? Isn't there something great about me? There is a level of desperation in that. And we all think it's kind of hidden, but it's actually quite transparent. And those who do this try to do it so casually as if it's just a kind of natural part of the conversation. But we all know it was planned and we all know it was purposeful. Feeling superior is so alluring to the ego, and we're all vulnerable to it, unless we maintain a level of awareness about it. Okay, so what about the other side? What about comparing up, if you will? The feeling of inferiority is also about separation and distinction. It's the same, but in the opposite way. Remember, our egos are always seeking separation and distinction, and one of the ways we separate is by complaining or holding grudges and declaring how, you know, things are so much more difficult for us than it is for anybody else. You know, thinking, well, I could have done what, what she did, but, you know, if, my, if, if I had the opportunity she had, or I could have done what he did, but, uh, you know, that's because his parents are rich, or they got that opportunity because they golf with the superintendent's group, or maybe if I played the game a little bit more. It's always a reason, right? Now, when we think of ego, we often think of a kind of superiority. But if there's one thing I think I've learned in my own personal journey, it's that feelings of inferiority are equally as egocentric. There is one phrase in our vernacular that, when I hear it, feels like the sound of a knife and fork scraping on a plate. Now, I was going to say, feels like nails on a chalkboard, but I feel like that reference is starting to get a little bit dated. And I would have called it a trigger, but uh, you heard me last week about how I feel about the overuse of that word too. So let's just say that I bristle at the sound of this phrase. And what's the phrase I'm referring to? It's this. Must be nice. Have you ever, ever heard that phrase in a way that's not cynical or negative? Me neither. Oh, you bought a new car. <laughs> Must be nice. Oh, you went to Hawaii at spring break? Oh, must be nice. Oh, you got to go to the conference in Las Vegas? Oh, must be nice. It's never positive. Now, comparing yourself to others is the fast track to unhappiness. In my amateur opinion, seeking superiority creates an unnecessary level of anxiety because that feeling of superiority is, as alluring as it is, it's fragile. Since... Everyone has the opportunity to reach your heights, so you've got to keep moving, right? You can never feel satisfied. Or maybe you can temporarily, but then you catch a glance of, of, of their success or their mentions on social media or someone directing positive comments to them and boom, your ego kicks in and it's time to feed the ego again. And, and after all, we, we can't let others catch up to us, so we got to keep moving. There's that internal anxiety that just grows from that mindset. Now, asserting inferiority is just as lethal to our happiness. Complaining and perpetual resentment is an ego-laced disposition that seeks separation. Like, why me? It's not fair. Why us? This always happens to me. I'm cursed. Why are we always dismissed? Why does this always happen? 
Again, it, it doesn't feel or sound like ego in the sense that most of us think of ego as in arrogance, but it really is. Those expressions of inferiority are also seeking distinction. We're seeking empathy from others, right? I want you to notice how bad I have it. So if I can get that from you, then I can also relieve myself of any responsibility for my happiness because after all, it's out of my hands. I'm doomed. Now here's the one time I think comparison can be a positive and only you will know whether it's a positive because only you have access to your thoughts. The only positive is if you use the comparison as an inspiration and a motivator to be better and to grow. If the comparison shows what's possible for you, shows you a kind of you know blueprint or roadmap of your potential future, then it can be a positive. But you can easily turn that positive into a negative. And here's how I think you will know. If you use others to inspire you, you're going to make that public. You'll probably approach that person or those people and say, hey, I really love what you're doing and I'm really inspired by that. And I'd love the opportunity to do that, whatever that is, you know, be it, you know, writing a book or saving for a vacation home or whatever, whatever it is. To me, that would be using the comparison in its most positive form. Now, I've been on both sides of that conversation. I have definitely approached people and said, hey, I'm really inspired by your work. I really love what you're doing. Can you tell me more about what you did or how you did that? Or, you know, I've definitely sought people's counsel in that direction. And I've also been approached by others in the other direction with the same sentiment. Now, if, however, your comparisons are kept a secret and your desires and goals are kept a secret, like you want to emulate that other person or those other people, but you actually never seek their counsel. You never seek their input. You never even let them know that you're inspired by what they're doing. Then you're probably not really inspired. You're probably just competing. You're wanting to surpass them in a sort of surprise way. You know, I, I, I've seen this play out before and it's all too predictable. If you're truly inspired, you probably would seek the input and the counsel of those who have inspired you. If you're competing, you'll keep it a secret. Now, Oscar Wilde once said, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery that mediocrity can pay to greatness. Now, sometimes imitation is diabolical. It's a way of trying to neutralize the success and attention of others. People think to themselves, oh, you did that? That's no big deal. I can do that too. You see, you're not so special. I did what you did. You're not that unique. I know that might sound a bit strange, but I can promise you it's a thing because I've seen it and heard it with my own eyes. You can't truly be happy if you feel anxious and desperate. And anxiety and desperation are an output of this, the, the constant search for superiority. And you can't be happy, truly, if you're constantly feeling less than or hard done by, if you're constantly expressing inferiority. Are you happy with you, full stop, is the question. Have you reached your goals? Are you where you want to be? Not, are you happier than others? Are you happier in comparison to other people? Comparison is the pathway to unhappiness. We all, all of us, have to continually work at feeling content with who we are and what we've accomplished. And there's nothing wrong with pushing yourself and driving to be better and, and trying to accomplish more. But it's when it's sourced from a comparison that it's often counterproductive. No one is you. No one has experienced your journey. So focus internally. And I, I, I think this is what people mean when they say happiness is an inside job. The bottom line is, comparing yourself to others in one direction or another is a sure-fired way to undercut your happiness. So do everything you can to raise your level of awareness, not just of what you're thinking, but where it's coming from, what's driving it. Now, we all have to work on this. The best of who we are is when we're in search of cohesion and connectedness and alignment, not separation and distinction. Now, when you get that separation and distinction, the ego is going to make you feel like you've won, whatever winning means, even though collectively, 
as a society, we will have lost. Listeners, as you know, I end every interview with guests with the same question. And that is, if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what's your definition of success? How would you answer them? Well, here are the answers my guests so far have given. Prepare to be inspired. Leaving the world a better place than what you left it. That there's some evidence that people's lives are better because you were present. And that could be your own children. It could be a neighbor. It could be your spouse. It could be an entire industry like Rick DeFore. And people are still talking about Rick DeFore. He's been, he's been physically deceased for three years. So I think the person who helps the homeless uh, is just as impactful as uh, 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 Bill Gates or uh, uh, Steve Jobs who revolutionized. Are people's lives better? because you were present. If it was all about you and nobody can say that, you know what? I see my job as a teacher differently now because of Tom Shimmer. That's greater than anything else that I could experience. I, I see reality differently. My kids, whoever, somebody could say that my life was better because this person exists. That's success to me. I, um, I, think, I think it is about being able to feel confident that you're living authentically and that you're, you're living authentically and you feel surrounded by um, people who inspire you, lift you up, see the possibility in you without having to do anything. <laughs> and also um, being able to feel like you're filling, fulfilling your purpose um, and a purpose where you're, you're um, seen and your strengths are part of this world that's a little complex, a little crazy, um, and trying to make other people's lives a little bit better, but also just living authentically and feeling that sense of peace. So I think that would be my answer. <laughs> it's interesting because in my first book that I, that I wrote um, called Children at Promise, uh, I actually define, redefine success for the sake of the book. The, the book is about character development and um, the character traits that are developed through adversity and relationships. And I define success as to the, to positively contribute to the moral and social fabric, the social and moral fabric of society. So this idea that, that to be truly successful, you have to be a contributor and not a taker. And I think that a lot of definitions of success are about acquisitions of things acquisitions of degrees, acquisitions of, of jobs and money taking things. Um, and I just believe that uh, success is about giving things and it's about contributing things. And so uh, that's kind of how I've lived my life is about, you know, being successful and hanging out with successful people who are contributors to uh, the moral and social fabric of, of our society. And I think that that's, um, I hold that very dear. For me, it's, I think it's, showing up daily in the different arenas that you enter, the different things that you take on in life and continually getting in the game, continually trying to improve yourself and or others. It's even in the low moments, it's just showing up and, and really trying to merge or push forward. Um, I, I don't, I know people ask me a lot of time about goals and I think goals are great, but I think goals like success, it's, it's not impactful if you reach it and just, move on to something different so like constantly taking on whatever your your life is and just showing up being present and continually trying to move forward um and that that's kind of how i base my career is just never perfect very happy with where i am but just continually trying to make growth that helps me and others around me you know in my workshops sometimes i remind people that the the conversation is the destination or the journey is the destination. And that our fixation on this sort of endpoint success, right, can sometimes take us away from the present moment. And so, like, I've been thinking about this a lot because I'm alone in my house during the COVID <laughs> thing. And, and I just really think that life is, is a whole bunch of present moments strung together, right, into this, into this life. And I feel like you know, success for me is staying present, um, not obsessing about the future or the past or things outside of me. And I think that that's what my daily work is to be curious and to, if I'm with people, I'm really with people. 
Um, you know, my dad used to have a saying, um, my dad is definitely one of my heroes. And he, he used to say that um, when I talk to people, I want them to feel better after talking to me than they did before I talked to them. And I, and it's a, he had a real servant leadership perspective. And I think I've very much internalized that. So success to me is, is helping people feel better about whatever it is that matters to them right now. And, and then that's like right from my professional life to my personal life. I just, I want to be present and I'm not always uh, successful in that even. Uh, that's a real struggle for me. Um, but I just think that's what success is. It's that this moment is a gift and that I see it as that and I treat it as that. I, I think for me, it simply is that I can wake up in the morning, feel loved, feel inspired to do the work that I get to do and have the means and resources to be able to do that on a daily basis um, without worrying about, you know, food and shelter and, and be able to have a place to do that work. Uh, I think I would say that my definition of success is having knowing with, with no doubt, with ultimate certainty that I've made a positive impact on the people around me. Um, and in, in my case, as a classroom teacher, like that means knowing without a doubt that I've made a positive impact on the kids who, who go through my room. Uh, and, it, and it happened for me. I'll just put this up on your screen uh, for you podcast people. I got a letter in the mail yesterday and it didn't have any name on the front of it. I, so I had no idea who it was from and it's, and it's written this beautiful cursive script. And I don't know a single person who writes in cursive, let alone who sends me letters. And uh, I opened it up and it's a letter from a student that I had last year. And I mean, it's just beautiful, you know? It's, Ms. Fairder, I hope you're doing well and I hope you're safe and it was so good to be in your class. And let me tell you more about, you know, what's happening with me. And um, so that's success, right? I obviously made enough of a difference on her that she's still thinking about me today. And so success means making a positive impact on the people who are around us. And as, and as teachers, I mean, I think that means making a positive difference on our kids preparing them academically to be successful, but preparing them socially to be successful, um, giving them the confidence that they can succeed. Like that's what success is. Facilitating success in others. How about that? I think success is whatever you want it to be. Um, where they're successful in, you know, learning something new. Uh, success can be achieving a goal. Um, can be happiness it's not always about money or you know I don't know uh, it's that's it's a hard question to actually answer um, for me it's about being happy and you know in happy and where you are in your life you know wherever that may be I guess it boils down to a single question to me and that is did I make a difference and so I have three C's that try to guard uh, that I try to use to did I make a difference? One is confidence, and I don't mean that from this from the sense of chutzpah or anything like that, but more, do I like the company I keep? Am I comfortable in my own skin? Can I trust my gut, my instincts, my ability to learn? And do I feel efficacious? The second is courage. Am I willing to push myself to take risks, to challenge myself, to um, and, and constantly improve myself and the world around me? And the third is connections. Am I in right relationships with other people, with my community, with the planet? Am I honest and fair and true and just? Um, so it's really about, can I leave the world a better place than I found it? Did I make a positive impact, but did I make a positive impact on somebody's life? You know, did I make a positive impact? Did I make a positive impact on, you know, my family, um, my students, someone I trained? Did I... Did I make a positive impact on, on their life? And did I do something that made them feel better or realize something? So I think that's to me, success. I mean, that's, it's not wealth. It's, it's not material. I mean, I've, I've worked for somebody, I, you know, before I became a teacher, I worked in the film industry. I worked for a guy, money not didn't bring happiness. I'll tell you that. Um, and even like fame and, and success is just really your sense of feeling like you made a positive contribution to this world and you made somebody feel better. And being unsuccessful means that it didn't work, but you didn't fail. 
See, I don't believe unsuccessful and failure are synonymous. Failure is when you don't. Like I failed to um, become an astronaut. I never went. I failed to become a lawyer. I didn't go to law school. But I was unsuccessful working in the film industry, but at least I tried. And I can walk away from that. So success is, did I make a positive impact? Did I, did I change the world a little bit for making it a better place? That's for me for success. Happiness, I would say, is um, the love of my kids. You know, I mean, you know, I, I have these accolades. I mean, I still got to pay for my Starbucks, but uh, that's what I like to say about it. But, you know, the greatest role I have is dad. You know, I have, I have kids who call me dad and there's, you know, or, you know, even not even that, but being even like, even like a father figure, like even to my, my niece and my nephew or like someone like a guy that they can look to, like they have, you know, my, uh, you know, dads, but um, you know, being someone who's like, kind of like not a role model, but someone they can look to and kind of like, see, yeah, that's the type of person, you know, I want to know or be. So I think that's my happiness is that more so that's actually probably tied to my success too, but my happiness is being a dad to my kids and seeing them succeed and seeing them, you know, do well. And that's my happiness. You know, I think the, the, the first thing for me when I think about success is, is I wake up every morning without dread about what I get to do, right? The, the work I get to do, the relationships I have, the connections, you know, I, every morning when I wake up is, is just, I'm looking forward to the day, right? I don't have that. The second part of that is, you know, for success, I, I want to be the person my grandbabies think I am, right? You know what it's like when, the, no, no matter what happens for them, I'm just grandpa. That, that is the thing. They don't know if I've written 17 books or if I've written 17 sentences. That doesn't matter. Right. They look at me. And so I want to be the person they think I am. That, that to me would be the ultimate definition of success. Probably. I don't know, three parts, I guess I'm thinking again, one is, is to love and to love fiercely. Uh, it can be a person, it can be an experience, but to, to love, to have that, you know, devotion, that dedication. The second is to remedy injustice that I feel like I've succeeded when I have remedied or, wrong, or changed a wrong, corrected a wrong or remedied an injustice. Something was unethical that I, I changed if, and somebody's aspect or, or success was able to do that. And then I think to, to be able to see the world through new eyes on, on a regular basis would be very successful. If you see it through the tired, same old filter and lens, um, there's probably not much out there for you. But to constantly conduct yourself in such a manner is one that you're accessible. Other people see you as approachable, but then you choose, it, it, I guess it's a gentle form of empathy, but to be able to see it through different eyes and then to come at the same things and see it anew, like I think T.S. Eliot once said is the ultimate goal is to see it through the child's eyes and see it constantly new. Um, that's quite a bit of success in your life. So I'll just take those three. I would say that success, I always tell my kids, this is, is truly living the life that you want to live. Um, I think that when you think about kind of your non-negotiables and, and what makes you really fulfilled and what makes you really happy, whatever life will serve that vision, I think is a good, beautiful, successful life. I would say success is doing what you love and loving what you do. If you can do what you love and you love what you do, to me, that is success. When I think of success, I think of it as succeeding at something. And therefore, to me, success has something to do with accomplishments. And I would say there are maybe two ways of judging that. There's sort of the external validation that comes from success. I mean, without sounding boasting, you know, Understanding by Design is an award-winning, best-selling book. So that's external validation for something that Grant Wiggins and I accomplished. Um, but the other part of it that maybe is more, more meaningful and, and in, intrinsic is, is success according to your own kind of gauge. So, I mean, I'll give you a, maybe a, a, a fairly simple example. I mentioned I was a college swimmer and I, I uh, was not a great swimmer. My, I, my uh, teammate was a all conference record holder and the best I could ever do in a race would be behind him second. But I would gauge my successes by improvements in my times. 
So it was a self-referenced uh, version of success. So that's a long way of saying, I think success is gauged by accomplishments, but accomplishments can be externally validated, but also internal, that you have grown, you've improved, um, irrespective of, of how you relate to the rest of the world. So that's, that's how I think about that word. I would probably say that success to me is being able to accomplish the goals that I set for myself. Sometimes they're simple and sometimes they're more complicated, but I think the happiness comes in the doing and that that's the part of the, you know, that's what success is to me to just kind of enjoy the ride. Yeah, easy one. And uh, I, I speak to this all the time. It's, uh, you know, find what you love doing and find a way to get paid for for doing it. You know, sometimes from the outside looking in, it looks like I have a lot on the go. Like, how does Trevor do all that? But I, I just love everything. Nothing gets put on my plate that I, I that doesn't align with that. And so, um, yeah, find what you love doing and find a way to get paid doing it for sure. My definition of success for me is my legacy. I think if I can say at the end of my day that I've put more good out there than bad, then I've been successful. I think of the teachers who I think about now and who I remember fondly. I'm 37 and the teachers who stuck with me who are still in my head and make me smile. Like I wanna be that teacher to a kid. I want to be that person at school who they think back on 25 years later and say, you know what? Yeah, Mrs. Conway, smile. You know, that's it. That's that's all I need for success is to know that I've had an impact on kids, that I've had an impact on education, and that, that more of that impact has been positive than negative. So I think that uh, to define success, I would say it's when you are living wholeheartedly, when you are embracing life and all the bumps and, uh, and con making connections and living with purpose. So I do place a strong value on our social responsibility to leave the world a little bit better or happier or more joyful than when we entered it. Um, and I think that happens when we're following our passions when we're making connections and, and spreading love? Um, my definition of success would be the connections that I have made and the family that I'm surrounded with. Um, and it's become, you know, it's COVID has not had a lot of positives. And unfortunately, because of the, you know, so many deaths and everything, um, including within um, our own family, but one of the positives that have come out of COVID is the connection, maybe the reconnections we've made with home um, and the understanding of what is truly, really special. So I would say the connections I've made with people and then my family, um, that would be the, the greatest line of success for me in the future. Yeah, um, I'd say a couple of things. Uh, one is um, for me, success is just knowing that. Um, I have not arrived. And like, to, to me, like anytime I feel like in my worldly sense that I have gotten somewhere, uh, just the, just being knocked back by someone, something, an event, and just realizing that, um, that, Hey, you haven't arrived yet to me, that is success. Um, I'll never forget when, um, I completed my first graduate degree. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm on top of the world. You know, I've got this degree. And then eventually I kind of realized that, um, I didn't really know as much as I thought, just based upon some conversations I had with some people. And I thought, wow, I need to learn more. And so I just kept learning more and learning more and learning more. And I thought maybe one day if I get a doctorate degree, I might have arrived to be successful. But then I'm now surrounded by a bunch of people that do have their doctorates. And as it turns out, I really don't know hardly anything about the things they know about and even the things I thought I knew about. And so to me, that, um, that sense of just being reminded of... Um, of stuff I don't know. That's why I write. That's why I talk to people like you, Tom, to, to, to find out what I don't know and how I can say and think about things differently. To me, that's success um, because that's what keeps me going. That's what keeps me going. But when I, when I hit that pitfall in the road and I think that I have arrived or that I think I'm the expert or that I know something, um, it seems in the moment as being successful. But 
every t- every time I look back, Tom, every single time I realize it was only success for a moment. Um, but it's moving above and beyond and past that and understanding how that's how that moment was actually a setback um, really is what um, helps me maybe define success. I mean, there's just some some things I feel and understand about uh, kind of faith as well that, that play in there that I have to continually realize that there's a lot of things I don't do right in life um, that also fuel me to move forward too. Actually, this is an easier question for me than any other. Um, and it's, it's only because um, when, when I was in school in Boston, I developed a fascination with the work of uh, Ralph Emerson and Henry uh, Thoreau. They, I lived in a little town called Acton, which is the next town up from Concord. And so I drove by um, the Emerson's home and, and Walden Pond all the time and read everything I could find about their works and that. There's a, a wonderful quote by uh, Ralph Otto Emerson that actually I have memorized and I recite before I make any presentation. Uh, and it is this. He said, uh, to laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty, to look for the best in others, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition, to know that one life has breathed easier because you have lived, that is to have succeeded. This week in Assessment Corner, I want to address transcripts and some things I think get overlooked as we spiral down these conversations about communicating student learning. Now first, Let me begin by saying that this is in no way a direct or an indirect critique of any organization, including Mastery Transcripts and others. You know, I would never, ever criticize any person or any organization trying to find more complete or more thorough ways to describe the depth and breadth of student achievement. Okay. My point today, however, is that I do think sometimes, and I mean this more generically, I do think sometimes we overreach with our assertions, and I think it's important that we stay grounded. We often have these insular conversations about aspects of assessment, which is fine, but we do need to check ourselves every once in a while when it comes to the interface with the outside world and outside agencies and universities, etc. We just need to be clear that the K-12 school system is never going to dictate to universities how they do business. Well, that is, you know, that's not to say that universities aren't open to new and different ways of processing admissions, but there will come a point where we no longer have sway. So I'm going to come back to that point uh, in a moment, but I want to begin by talking about the symbols. We're going to talk about symbols, and then we're going to talk about transcripts again. So first, the, the arguments against what can be communicated with a singular symbol, I believe, are somewhat overstated, right? Now, I'm not arguing that one symbol or letter of the alphabet defines a learner thoroughly. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, however, is that you can actually learn quite a bit from a singular symbol. You probably could learn even more from multiple symbols, right? The example I'll give you is driving. If you were driving and all you saw was a red octagon, think of all of the information that starts to run through your mind and all of the things you need to consider as you approach that red octagon, right? Or if it was a, you know, you're going down a road and you see a triangle, what does that tell you when you're driving? Now, of course, there is a universal understanding of what those symbols mean, which is part of the problem with the traditional transcripts, right? There's there's no agreed upon sort of definition of what the letter grades represent, and therein lies the under underlying. Therein lies the problem, right? That's the challenge. We don't have kind of universal agreement on what letter grades are supposed to represent. In many ways, this is kind of an argument in favor of standards-based grading. That grades be based on the achievement of standards. Like even those who are naysayers about standards-based grading, they often push back with the uh, "What about college, Tom?" or "What about universities?" And I think to myself, "Yeah, what about it?" 
you know, maybe to begin with, we should at least ensure that if the college transcript is still a thing, and it is, that in the end, colleges can actually glean clear uh, information about student learning from the transcript. Like if we've got inconsistency with how grades are determined and what they mean, that's an even bigger issue. Because if an A in your class is about reaching a 90% threshold based on averaging old and new evidence, and an A in my class is about reaching exemplary status regardless of how low or slow the student started, while our colleagues have a, a view of an A meaning exceeding the expectations of the standards, then how in the world is any university, any university admissions office, supposed to make any sense out of what they're receiving? This is why, for years, I've been saying, can we, can we stop obsessing about the symbols if you haven't already obsessed and reconciled the assessment practices that produce the symbols? Okay, we, we have to have some clarity. We have to be able to clearly communicate a level of readiness, because if one transcript is about point accumulation and another is about rigorous expectations and standards that meet the, meet the cognitive complexity of the state standards or the provincial curriculum, those are totally different experiences. The reason a single red light on a stoplight, for example, conveys so much information is because there is universal agreement about what it means, what you can do, what you can't do, all of that. Okay. So I'm not trying to tell you that a single symbol can tell you everything. I think multiple symbols can tell you a lot. And I realize that you know, if, and this is a big if, I realize that if we can agree on what the letters of the symbols mean, in other words, they represent gradations of understanding or gradations of quality and not the accumulations of points, then we certainly can gain more information about the learner. Okay, so now now the issue of transcripts. Let's, let's talk about that. First, we need to remind ourselves of the different purposes. A transcript is not a report card and a report card is not a transcript. They serve different purposes, there is a different audience, and so on. So that issue of purpose is something that we always have to consider in assessment. It always comes back to purpose. It's such a powerful question. Because once you're clear on your purpose, whether that's the formative and summative purpose, or who is the audience, or how do I intend to use the information, all of those questions, we always make better decisions. We just do. Now, the argument I often hear you know, on Twitter and in these abstract conversations is, you know, why can't we ditch the traditional transcript and move to a, say, portfolio system or move to something where it's a more robust kind of system? And again, I have nothing against portfolios. They serve, a, they can serve a great purpose. Um, I'm all in favor of portfolios as long as we're clear on what purpose, we're, again, there's that question, purpose. What purpose does the portfolio serve? But as an initial part of the college application process, um, we have to think this through a little bit because I'm going to run some numbers by you and, and let's just think about the plausibility of this whole process. And I'm going to use UCLA as the example. Now, I know that arguing extremes isn't always the best way to construct an argument, but I would argue, <laughs> that's a lot of argue there, I would argue that universities and colleges will, like any organization, they'll adjust their personnel based on workload. They're not going to have excess staff sitting around doing nothing, right? So, so the more applications there are, the more personnel they will have, and it'll probably scale to be scaled appropriately. The smaller the school, the fewer the applications, the fewer staff that will be allotted. I don't know that to be a fact. I'm just, I'm pretty sure that's how they would go about their business. Okay, UCLA. Why did I pick UCLA? UCLA is number one in the United States in terms of applications received, okay? In 2019, according to U.S. News & World Report, UCLA received 111,000 applications. They only admitted 12% of the applicants, right? So 88% don't get in. So let's just imagine for a moment, let's start running some numbers here and, and think through this hypothesis of, of portfolios. Let's imagine that a portfolio was used as part of the application process. I'm just going to ballpark these numbers. I, you know, they could be more, could be less. I could be wrong for sure. I haven't done a deep dive and tried to crunch the numbers to decimal places. I'm just ballparking these numbers. Okay, so follow me here. Let's just say that each portfolio is given 15 minutes to consume. 
I'm thinking maybe you could probably do it in about 10 minutes if it was pretty efficient, but let's create a five minute buffer so that there's breaks involved or if one portfolio takes a little longer, um, things like that. So we're going to allot 15 minutes on average per portfolio, okay? 10 minutes to consume the five minute buffer. So at that pace, you can get through four in an hour, which means in an eight hour workday, one person will be able to consume 32 portfolios. Okay, that means 160 per week, that's 640 a month, okay? And we're going to say they're going to do this in a span of about five months, okay? So the first half of the year. Now, they might do some work in the summer and all that. Again, I, I don't know what the process looks like. It could be stretched out a little longer. I know there's kind of an overlap with the admissions process, but we're just sort of talking about uh, this in the hypothetical here. Okay, so at that pace... Okay, 640 a month. At five months, doing, by the way, nothing else as part of their employment, one person in that five-month span could consume 3,200 portfolios in five months. Now, they're doing nothing else. Remember, there's 111,000 applicants. So UCLA would probably need around, you know, 35 employees whose sole purpose was to consume portfolios. They couldn't do anything else as part of the admissions process, right? They couldn't do any recruiting. They couldn't travel. They couldn't meet with high school students. They couldn't meet with parents. They couldn't advertise. They couldn't take phone calls from counselors. Nothing. They can't get sick. They can't take holidays. And certainly, they cannot suffer from portfolio fatigue. Now, if you add that to the idea of international recruiting, right? Overseas travel, all of that. So we're probably, when you think about all that's involved in the application process and the processing of those applications, conservatively, we'd probably need to double or triple the number of staff associated with the admissions process. So if we take the number 35 and we triple it, we're talking about 105 people in total uh, as part of the admissions, recruiting, et cetera, process. Now, if those 105 people made 35,000 a year, and again, that's a completely random salary. I'm just throwing a number out there on average. Some probably make more, some maybe make less. I don't really know how it works. You would have to, UCLA would have to dictate 3.675 million dollars to their personnel budget alone just for the admissions office. That's nothing else. That's not even operations. Then that's not travel expenses, that's not recruiting brochures, that's not advertising. It's that's none of it. It's just salary and 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 we haven't even talked about benefits. So when we get into these hypotheticals or maybe even these pontifications we don't often think through these ramifications. 105 employees, close to $4 million. UCLA is not doing that. Why would they? They already have a, an application rate that exceeds any school in the United States. They only accept 12% of the applications. So why would they do that? They're not going to do that. Now, some could say, okay, Tom, you're being a little unrealistic. Now, that's fair. Okay, okay, again, maybe you only need to double the personnel. That's, that's totally fair. But I want us to just think about these things when we throw things out there and we don't think through the, the ramifications of these kinds of ideas that we throw out there. We're just throwing out ideas out there to be visionary. But, I mean, come on, think it through a little bit, right? Just like in the previous episode, we talked about blow up the system. Like, okay, can, can, we, can we, the details matter here, okay? All right, so some would say, okay, that's a bit of an exaggeration, Tom. What if we just cut, what if we had an initial screening process and then we cut the number of portfolios in half so, that, so they'd only have to consume 55,000 portfolios? Okay, so tell me the mechanism for cutting that list in half. What's the list for turning 111 or 100, you know, 111,000 into around 55,000? GPA? Is that, is that the mechanism? Are we not right back to where we were before and that which we lamented? Let's run that math in a slightly different way. 55,000 portfolios 
at 10 minutes a pop, you would need 555,000 minutes, which is 9,250 hours. You would need 232 40-hour work weeks to do that. So you'd need 60 people, and they could do it in a month. And then the question is, are they trained? Do they all know what they're looking for? Is there even a standard for what a portfolio should look like? Is there even... Now, I know there's no standard for a transcript either, but I'm talking about their standard. They now have to make some inferences about readiness and about admissions, etc. So what is their standard for screening the portfolios? This is my frustration with the hypotheticals, okay? It's, it's not visionary if you can't provide any details or an answer to some of these questions. It's just a platitude. The optics and the structure of a transcript mean nothing if the information in the portfolio or on the transcript are completely inconsistent and it just opens up a wider range of inconsistencies uh, even though there's already inconsistencies in the traditional system, you could argue that a portfolio system or any kind of more robust transcript may actually widen the breadth of inconsistency. Again, I'm not against these ideas per se, but sometimes I think we lose the plot and it feels more like, you know, how can I be more visionary than the next person? Or I want to be the one that really loathes grades. You think you hate grades? Oh, you should see me. I hate them more than you. I even start twitching when I see my seat assignment on an airplane because it has letters on them and the whole alphabet offends me. And I mean, it's just, it, it's exhausting listening to and, and seeing what, what gets put out there. My point is this, okay? Of course, there are more detailed ways that students could present themselves to universities. But I think we have to be mindful that for so many schools, the process as it exists now, including many public, public universities, public schools, it works for them. And they're not overly concerned about their admissions process. They think they do a pretty thorough job. Now, the University of California system is a really interesting system because according to that same U.S. News & World Report in 2019, six of the top seven schools in terms of applications are the University of California system schools. UCLA, UC San Diego, UC Irvine, Santa Barbara, Berkeley, then it was NYU, and then it was UC Davis. Those six University of California schools, six of the top seven, over half a million applications per year, 564,000 roughly applications. The University of San Diego, or University of California at San Diego, has only 35,000 students. They have just under 100,000 applications per year. So they're roughly admitting about 8% of the students. And, and of course, everybody's applying to San Diego. It's, it's San Diego. I, look, I just think we have to think it all the way through. Being a, a social media visionary, it's, it's just not enough. Okay, we always seem to be cavalier with what others should be doing. Um, but we have to think this through a little bit, because as we envision a new transcript or a new portfolio, we have to keep in mind the end user. You'll remember when we talked when I talked about report cards a number of episodes ago, that my assertion was that we have to make sure that report cards are in whatever form they come, online, tangible, whatever, that they need to be consumable to families. Because if they're not consumable to the end user, if you create a report card system structure that takes families an hour to consume or even 45 minutes to consume or whatever, it's not going to happen. It's not going to serve the desired result. And the same thing with universities. We have to think about the fact that we can envision all these systems because we think, well, this is just one student. But you have to think about that. 111 application, 111,000 applications, I should say. So I guess this is what I mean when I use the phrase, and some of you have heard me say this before, and I've said it in different contexts, but this is what I mean sometimes when I say, we need to have an adult conversation about this, okay? We, we can't just throw things out there because it, 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 at times it becomes, I wouldn't say irresponsible, but it's just, it's completely disassociated with any form of reality. 
So trying to outflank each other and trying to hate grades more than the next person, that that to me is counterproductive, okay? And and maybe this system changes and, and maybe we can envision a different system of reporting and that the whole sort of system, the the almost the the K to 16 system can kind of envision a different way of communicating learning. And that's fine. That's a different conversation. But at some point, if we want to make real meaningful change in the acute moment, we have to think this through. So real meaningful change is going to include a conversation with the universities, with the colleges. And we are going to have to make some concessions in terms of what is ideal and what they can plausibly handle. Uh, you know, we have to consider what their needs are in terms of, of, of their personnel and, and all of that other work. It is their process. UCLA gets to decide what it takes to apply to UCLA. It's not up for the K-12 schools to decide that for them. They own that process. And I think if we're a little bit more mindful about the end user, I think, ironically, we will actually be able to bring about more meaningful change as to how we communicate learning. You know, whether it's a standards-based sort of approach that has multiple grades or something like that, I think we will actually be able to make some headway. But these wide-sweeping statements, these hypotheticals and pontifications that aren't thought through, I actually think are counterproductive to real, meaningful conversations about the college application process. Okay, that's it for today. A few announcements before we close out. Uh, First, a reminder about the Achieve Institute, which is the institute focused on promising practices in instruction, assessment, and grading. That'll be a virtual institute this August 16, 17, and 18. That's going to feature myself, Cassandra Erkins, Nicole Dimich, and Katie White. So if you're interested in that event, head over to the solutiontree.com website for details. And I've also added a link to that event and that website page uh, in the show notes. Also, just a reminder about the summer series that I'm hoping to organize and would love your input. Uh, Just a reminder, June, July, August, I'm going to do a couple of things. One is we're going to go to an every other week schedule. So there'll be seven episodes over those three months. And rather than the usual format, I'm going to try to create this uh, summer series focused on specific or special topics. So I want to bring together multiple educators for conversations around some special topics and that will be kind of the entire episode. So that's where you come in, um, in the show notes. And I'll also tweet this out from the podcast Twitter account. That's at Tom Schimmer Pod. Uh, there's a link in the show notes to a Google survey where I've listed nine potential special topics. And I'd like you, uh, through the survey, to rank those nine topics in terms of, you know, one through nine in terms of the topics that you would like to hear this summer, you'd like to take a a deeper dive in. Now, after you've done those rankings, there is another section in case there are topics that I haven't listed, you can also add a topic for that as well. So I'm going to keep this survey active uh, probably until the end of April, uh, but I would like to start formulating some ideas a little bit sooner. So please, if you're interested in contributing to that survey, I would really appreciate that. And you can help me decide which topics we'll cover in June, July, and August. And so in September, we'll get back to the usual format. Uh, but I thought, you know, for the summer, it might be good to do something a little bit different. Um, you know, maybe things that aren't so time sensitive. Uh, you need some downtime. I need some downtime. The weekly pace of the podcast may not be conducive to the summer. So we'll kind of ease into the summer and, and uh, you know, have these sessions that are Uh, like I said, not so time sensitive. So remember to follow the podcast Twitter account for updates and information. That's at Tom Shimmer pod. As I mentioned, Uh, you can follow me as well on Twitter at Tom Shimmer, Uh, Shimmer Education on Facebook, Tom Shimmer podcast on Instagram. As always, lots of places you can connect uh, to the podcast. And also please email me your questions for assessment corner or any suggestions you have for the podcast. That's Tom Shimmer pod at gmail.com. And also the YouTube channel. Don't forget about that as well. Tom Schumer podcast on YouTube. Once again, next week, my guest will hopefully be Leanne Young. Uh, And a reminder that Leanne is the CEO of uh, Lead Inclusion. She's a clinical professor at San Diego State University. Uh, She's a very close friend of mine um, and an educator for whom I have just tremendous respect for. And I've learned a lot from over the years as well. So our focus is going to be UDL and assessment, but I'm sure we will get into a number of topics uh, along that, uh, throughout that conversation, I should say. So please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as I mentioned earlier, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course. 
And again, if you like the podcast, you like what you're hearing, um, please spread the word uh, about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, social media, or wherever you can. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. 